Hello, and welcome to the bunker with me, Ahir Shah. Today, measurement. Measuring and quantifying the world is something we do on a daily basis. Perhaps you're listening to this very podcast while measuring out ingredients for dinner in grams and milliliters if you're normal, or in cups if you're a war criminal. Measurement is so ubiquitous that we rarely consider its history. But what is that history, and how does what and how we choose to measure affect our lives and our societies? Joining me to discuss this is tech journalist James Vincent, whose new book Beyond Measure is a revelatory and vibrant history of measurement that provides a fresh perspective on the entirety of the physical world. So hopefully we can cover all of that in a short conversation. James, welcome to the bunker. Fantastic to be here. Here, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I want to talk about the entire material plane, if that's possible today. <laughs> well, let's give it a go, and let's start by asking. You know, you're a tech journalist at The Verge, normally, I guess, very future focused.、Mm. So, why did you choose measurement and history in this way? Well, I got into the subject when I was covering quite a futurey aspect of measurement, which was the redefinition of the kilogram. This was、uh, sort of something that came up in 2018 when it was voted on by the people who control the kilogram, and then in 2019 they did adopt this new definition. And basically, to keep it quite short, the kilogram used to be a lump of metal, and it is no longer a lump of metal. It is now a sort of a, a quantum calculation based on quantum forces and electromagnetism. So, although measurement has this long history in the book. Explores a lot of that. You know, it goes back to the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Egyptians. It also is something that is incredibly vital to the modern world, and it's something that we're updating constantly, as with the case of the kilogram. It really seems like the history of measurement included lots of things that either were arbitrary or seemingly semi-arbitrary, but that people tried to make, like rationalize, sort of almost、uh, over time. Uh, and I think that the utility of some of the more seemingly arbitrary ones is really fascinating. So I wondered, there's a unit of measurement you bring up called the collop, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the collop. Ah, the collop! I love the collop. So the collop is an old Irish unit of measurement, and it's essentially a measurement of land, of area, but it's not defined by you know what we think of as Cartesian geography. It's not coordinates or anything like that. It's how much land you need. To sustain a single cow, you know that sounds on the face of it like a sort of crazy way to measure land because you know that's obviously a measurement that would differ. But that's the whole point of the unit in that if you're selling someone some land, it might be great land, it might be crap land. You want to know how many cows you can keep on that plot of land, so you measure it out in collops rather than in you know what would have been the equivalent of meters in that period. Now this is an old unit. And quite a lot of units used to be like this. I thought this was the fascinating thing that I discovered while writing the book: is that you know we think of units of measurement as something that are quite inflexible, but actually they used to sort of shrink and expand in various scenarios. Land measurement was definitely the most common sort of instantiation of that, and it's something that we're sort of familiar when we think about old units like acres, for example. So an acre. Used to be defined similarly to the collop, not by how much land was needed for a single cow to graze, but by how much land you could till with a gang of oxen in a single day. And this is something that you find all across Europe during the medieval period, because obviously it's an agricultural economy. Knowing how much land needs to be ploughed is really, really important. So things were measured in these units, which sort of bend and flex with a quality of the ground that they are describing. So yeah, 
that's where the collop comes in. What was fascinating in reading the book was the degree to which this flexibility was associated with things that now seem extraordinarily inflexible, like the concept of like time. I was stunned to discover that an hour, which I think like, well, an hour is an hour is an hour, but it hasn't always been the case. Yeah, no, exactly. An hour is perhaps one of the most, um, it's sort of when you begin to think about it, it makes complete sense. But before there were clocks, before you had, you know, the mechanical clockwork that would keep a steady, consistent beat throughout the day, how would you measure an hour? If you didn't have any way of slicing up time into these uh, repeated measures, what would you do? So in the sort of earliest timekeeping we know of, and again, this goes back to sort of ancient civilizations, the ancient Babylonians, as far as we know, just divided the day up into 12 periods. But they started and stopped those 12 periods at sunrise and sunset each day. But as we know, because of the changing seasons on the earth, the time that sunset (laughs) starts each day differs. So that means that the length of the hour would have to differ as well. So you have these hours which are Someone said they are breadths, not points, which I think is a really fantastic way to conceptualize the difference. They are sort of allotted spaces within time rather than really strictly quantified periods. And although this sounds like a sort of old-fashioned and romantical and mystical way to think about measurement, we still do this today, of course, because, yes, you can measure things out in hours and we, we do that. But we also think, well, I'll just work a little bit more and I'll work until I get this job done and then I'll have a bit of a break and then I'll do this. So we still sort of have this flexible approach to measuring time. So it seems like the story of measurement and this history is a move sort of from the much more flexible towards the much more rigid and historically has been very tied up with political power, the power of the state and the sort of imposition of the will of centralizing authorities. And probably the best way to get into a discussion about this is what happened during the French Revolution. <laughs> it always comes back to the French Revolution, doesn't it? I listen to your podcast regularly and it's all, we always end up back here with the French Revolution. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that is that is definitely the big story of measurement, as it were, is that it starts off as something basically unstandardized, something a little bit improvised a lot of the time. You know, you get a lot of units of measurement that are taken from the body, for example, like the ancient Egyptian cubit, which is measured from the elbow to the fingertip, or the the Roman passus, which is a pace about 1.5 meters in, in sort of in modern units. But whilst these are, it's really useful to create a measurement like this, because it's something, you know, you have your body to hand the whole time, so you can always measure it out again. It's not very consistent. And so if you are a state authority, you will want to know exactly how, well, how much land you've got, for example. And if someone is measuring out that land in collops or they're measuring it out in acres, okay, it's very practical for the farmers on the field. But if you are, say, the taxman and you want to know exactly how much land that is, it doesn't give you a very sort of transferable unit of information. And so what happens over time is that states begin to take or, you know, central authorities begin to take control of the power to define units of measurement. Now, there's this fantastic book that I talk about a lot in the book, which is called Seeing Like a State, which is by an economist named James C. Scott. And he talks a lot about how these sorts of centralizing systems are really important to making the state work. And it's not just about standardized weights and measures, but it's about creating uniformity in language. It's about creating census data. And it's essentially, if you are the state, you want to have an overview of all the resources available to you. If you don't have standardized weights and measures, that's not going to happen. 
So this is a power that the state really sort of seizes and then begins to impose on people. Yeah, it supports one another, right? That the authority and measurement sort of legitimize one another in that, like, who is the state? It's the person who defines what this unit is and what is this unit it is the thing that the state deems it to be. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's sort of when you look back in history, there's this real association and we sort of it's almost two on the nose between rulers and rulers, right? That there is a reason that those two words, they are homonyms, that they yoke together in that way. Then one of the things I saw when I was sort of visiting Paris, looking at some of the artifacts related to this story was this fantastic series of statues by a, a sort of prince named Gadea. And he was from southern Mesopotamia and he ruled about 2100 BC, basically. And in a few of his statues, he is sort of posed with a ruler on his lap and plans for a temple because you know, this was his legacy to the world. He was um, known as a temple builder. And in order to do that, he had to have sort of some standardized units of measure. And it was so important that the unit, you know, the ruler is in his hand, like, like a scepter, almost. And there's this real sort of historical link between the two. But sorry to skip forward 1000s of years, what happened in the French Revolution was that there was France at the time was really suffering from this profusion of measures. And the right to sort of define units of measurement was often the prerogative of, you know, your local seigneur, the local lord, basically. And they would use this right in all sorts of exploitative ways. So when they were taking grain payments from peasants, for example, they would use a unit of, a, um, let's say, a bushel, or the, you know, the, the French equivalent at that period, that was slightly larger than the ones the peasants would use at the markets. And so, you know, there was this uproar among the many sort of inequalities of the Ancien Regime, that peasants didn't have control of their own units. And so in order to fix this, the French revolutionaries were like, right, we better do something about this. And what they did about this was the metric system. And sort of some of it sort of stuck in terms of like kilometers and liters and that sort of thing. But then some of it there was pretty intense pushback to like the calendar, right? Yeah, yeah. So w when the French revolutionaries or the sort of intellectual elite of France at the time, and it's really important to stress like how ahead of pretty much everywhere else France was scientifically at this point. It was really like Paris was the global capital of science. And these, these, these sort of the figures that we have from the, that period were really, you know, internationally renowned in all these sorts of ways. So they came up with the metric system and they were like, we need to reinvent units of measurement in a way that is not based upon the political authority of kings, basically. We're getting rid of kings, we're getting rid of queens, so we've got to get rid of the measurements that they sort of defined. Yeah, and they came up with all these units, of course, the meter and the kilogram, and as the revolutionary fervour grew in this period, they were like, well, well why stop there? Because they'd sort of realised the power of defining these uh, sort of everyday practical structures of knowledge in the world, they began to also replace the calendar and later even time itself. So they created a revolutionary calendar, which had 12 months still, but each month had three weeks with 10 days in it instead. And the idea was that instead of orientating you know, the temporal world around the, the old calendar, which was very much associated with the church and had this succession of religious festivals and celebrations, they would orientate it around revolutionary ideals and aspirations. So they had these new festivals associated with the new calendar, and they were meant to celebrate and inspire revolutionary virtues. 
And they introduced this for a couple of years and it, it, it didn't do so badly, actually. It stuck around for a while, but obviously it was phased out as the sort of high watermark of revolutionary zeal also died out. So in taking us sort of on a journey then from Mesopotamia through to the modern world, I think what comes across is the extent to which this manner of trying to contextualize the world around us and almost sort of making the world around us manageable as soon as we became creatures capable of abstracting and stuff is something that goes back tens of thousands of years and seemingly like the first sources that we can see of anyone really doing anything or like writing anything is, is to be engaging in measurement. And so is is this really at the crux of what it is to be human? Are we Are we the measuring animal? Well, I feel like I don't want to... Homo measurus. Yes. I, <laughs> I, well, you know what? Obviously, I've written a book about it. So I, I think it's pretty important in terms of defining who we are. But I'm also very aware that, of course, everyone who's written a nonfiction book, say, about the history of salt or the history of cod. Sorry, I'm thinking of a specific writer there who I'm very much a fan of. But they go, hey, did you know the world revolves around salt or the world revolves around cod? Measurement, I think, is a better argument than those two <laughs> in terms of, <laughs> sort of essential nature for the human spirit. But measurement as a sort of practice obviously involves other skills as well. You can't measure without mathematics and you can't really measure without writing. You can sort of make approximate measures, but the whole utility of measurement is that you, you, know, you, you mark stuff down and then you can share that information. So one of the sort of philosophers, historians who I like is a guy named, and who I sort of drew upon in this book was a guy named Theodore Porter. And he talks about measurement as a tool of communication. So it's essentially, you know, I have some information about the world and it might be if you're, you know, Gadir, the Prince of Lagash in Mesopotamia, it might be, well, I want to build this temple and I've got the plans for it, but I don't want to be there for when it happens. I don't want to have to supervise every aspect of its construction. So you come up with the units of measurement. You know that the people on the other side of your kingdom know what those units of measurement are. And that means you can send them the plans over. So it's a way of communicating. It's a way of sort of I don't know, extending power across the world. So I really do think it is absolutely essential to civilization. You know, if, if we couldn't measure, we couldn't trade, we couldn't build cities, and we really couldn't do scientific research. We, you know, the whole of the scientific method, or not the whole of the scientific method, some people would argue it, a lot of the scientific method is built upon the power of measurement, because it allows you to replicate experiments. You do the same each time, and then you notice what changes. When we discuss something as seemingly quotidian as measurement, you wouldn't necessarily think of it as something having a dark side. Uh, <laughs> but of course, uh, what what you make very clear in your writing is that there there is indeed a real dark side to this, because as we sort of measured outward things and wanting to like be like, oh, this is what a mile is and everything, these measurements were also turned inwardly into, into human beings and trying to sort of categorize human beings and in, led in its extreme form in the 19th and 20th centuries to eugenics, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the chapters in the book is about sort of the history of statistics, because statistics is the art of measuring en masse, essentially. You know, it's what happens when you go, you know, uh, I, can, I can measure how tall you are, but what if I measure how tall everyone in your village is? And what if I measure how tall everyone in the country is? And then what happens if I look at those numbers and compare them to other countries? 
And, you know, that's just obviously one example of a measurement that turns into a statistic with a quantity. But that was something that was really, really fascinating sort of during the, the 18th century when these, when these practices first become established. And again, it's something that's tied to the rise of the centralized state because you have, again, a state that wants to know what's happening within its borders. And so it starts collecting um, what one historian calls like an avalanche of uh, an avalanche of documentation, I think it is, or an avalanche of papers. And out of this comes this guy named Quetelet, Adolf Quetelet. He was a Belgian statistician and he was originally an astronomer. And astronomy is where a lot of these sorts of methods of measurement or mass come from, because obviously uh, astronomers are collecting a lot of data all the time about the movement and position of stars. And they want to apply that, and look at it, you know, and see what the big picture is, quite literally. And so Quetelet go, well, I've got all these methods for sort of wrangling large databases. What if I start applying them to humans instead? So he started collecting all sorts of statistics about humans, including height, you know, chest sizes. And he started sort of looking what he thought were the differences in populations. And for him, it was it was kind of a, he, he thought of it as in this quite beautiful way. He, he invented the concept of the average, essentially. He thought that the average was something really, really aspirational. He called it homme moyenne. You know, he thought that the average was something we should all aspire to, which I think is kind of lovely because now we think of the average as meaning something very mediocre and very boring. But for him, it was this state of equilibrium and everything was in perfect harmony with itself. But what happened to his work is that obviously others built on this. They were fascinated by his ideas. And of course, we began to measure other things. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in this chapter is the measurement of intelligence, of IQ tests particularly, which I think are, well, you know, <laughs> I think are essentially wrongheaded. I'm not against the, the concept of, you know, trying to measure intelligence, but I am against the sort of meaning that people put onto measurement. You know, they think it is something that is entirely static. They think it captures the entirety of a person often, or they present it in this way, and they think of it as something that can't change. And this was where the eugenics movements essentially gets involved, and that people start going, well, we've invented these tests for measuring how clever people is. We're going to try and measure everyone. And, you know, lo and behold, they start measuring in America, particularly in the United States, they start measuring the intelligence of immigrants. And obviously, these tests, you look at them now and you think, how would you ever convince yourself that you were measuring something in an objective fashion here? Because, you know, a lot of the tests were tests that required, well, you know, a, a decent understanding of the English language, or it required a sort of knowledge of cultural norms in America. And they would take these tests and they would apply them to immigrants who were literally just arriving in the country, who'd maybe spent you know, eight weeks in the bottom of this ship, packed in like cattle with other with other people making the same perilous journey. You know, they were escaping poverty. They were escaping this harsh life. And then someone takes them aside and goes, so hot dog is to burger as <laughs> ice cream is to... And you go, what? What? Okay, that's <laughs> not an actual example I want to stress, but that is the sort of, you know, cultural knowledge that was expected of people. And yes, this this data, this measurement was what ended up fueling the eugenics movement because there was this huge scare that this wave of um, what they thought to be low IQ individuals was going to, you know, pollute the genetic base of America. And obviously from that follows, well, the horrors of eugenics, which, you know, we don't need to go over. We know <laughs> what happened in the 20th century. 
Yeah, it, it was particularly horrifying when I read the Nazi war criminal at Nuremberg using American eugenics ruling and yeah. saying that we just took that to its natural conclusion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that we, we don't think about often enough. But, you know, the United States, the laws that they put into various states are basically introduced in forced sterilization laws, where if they, you know, tested you and they thought you were not clever enough, they'd be like, right, no more children. And they would force women to be sterilized, basically. And this was something that they did way ahead of the German race laws. And the Germans basically copied them. And yeah, and this is that, exactly what happened at the Nuremberg trials that the Germans just said, oh, we learned from you. Did you not notice? Um, mm. So yeah, it's really, it's, it's horrific, but definitely something that I think, you know, we can't forget. And we always need to remind ourselves where that where that came from. To move to something less harrowing, final question, really, which is a thing that I had never considered before, but once the question was posed, seemed so obvious and so maddening as a question, which is, how do you make a thermometer without a thermometer? <laughs> <laughs> I was the other night talking to people at a party, being like, how do you think you'd go about it? What, what would you do? Uh, right. And so I wonder if you could explain sort of what the problem was and how people ended up trying to get over it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a lot of the book is to do with, you know, what we think of as sort of quite easy things to measure like weight and length and that sort of stuff you know you can look at an object and go well it's longer than that object it's shorter than that object but with something like temperature I think you have this uh, really interesting idea of how do we measure something that we really don't know how to understand in an objective fashion so you know looking back through the history of thermometry of measuring temperature people definitely knew it was very important you know the ancient Greeks talked about hot and cold as these animating forces within the universe but they didn't really know what to do with them. And as we move into sort of the 1500s, people start to develop these early thermometers, which are called thermoscopes. And basically, it's just a tube. Uh, it looks like a classic thermometer in a way with a bit of liquid in the bottom. And the liquid would, uh, you know, they change that based on what would work best for the task. And as the heat changes around the thermometer, the air pressure changes in it and the liquid falls or rises. So they would go, well, I can stick this thing in snow and it goes down and I can put it in front of the fire and it goes up. So we definitely know there is this comparison between the two. But the problem is, how do you make sure that your thermometer is the same as someone else's thermometer? So they start adding lines to these thermoscopes and they start dividing them up into what we now would call degrees. But it was really, really difficult to create uh, thermometers that they knew were the same each time. And, and again, because measurement is this tool of communication. It's all about consistency and standardization. So, you know, if you're doing an experiment, say, with creating a new metal alloy, and you know you need to get to, you know, a certain, you know, 200 degrees or something like that for a chemical reaction to change to take place, how do you know that your 200 degrees is the same as someone else's 200 degrees, you know, on the other side of the country or in a different country altogether? And this led to this sort of profusion of thermometric standards. You know, today there's Celsius and there's Fahrenheit and there's only two. So they were looking for sort of stable thermometric phenomena. So they were looking for things that happened at the same temperature each time, because then you can use that thing in order to verify if your thermometer is, is the same, basically, if your 18 degrees is the same as my 18 degrees. Um, and they tried all sorts of things to provide this sort of anchor for measuring temperature. There were lots of suggestions like the melting point of butter, the heat 
of blood freshly drawn that was actually suggested by newton i believe what a metal guy i really i mean like newton was he was absolutely crazy you know man the man liked to poke himself in the eye with blunt sticks and you know believed all sorts of odd mystical and alchemical things i'm a big fan of newton like we top top notch uh, weirdo definitely but one of the suggestions which i really really liked when people were like oh well how do we know how hot anything is is like a scale in which there were two separate readings for the hottest a bath can be when you put your hand in it and then the hottest a bath can be when you put your hand in it but you move the hand around a little bit so this this, this was the sort of attention to detail that this quest inspired and of course we all sort of know this now, but eventually they discovered that, hey, the boiling point of water and the freezing point of water seem to be pretty consistent. They seem to happen around the same temperature each time. And again, you say this now and you sort of everyone knows, yeah, water freezes at zero degrees C and it boils at 100 degrees C. But of course, that sounds nice and neat, but that's only neat because we discovered this and we put those numbers there. And even then, when people started digging into this thing, they were like, okay, well, why do, where does, what counts as boiling in water? And there's this great experimentalist this, uh, who was you know, working on these thermometers, and he sort of came up with eight different types of boiling because he, he, he just spent, he literally just spent ages boiling water and looking at it and going, well, that's sort of different to that. And he comes up with all these wonderful poetic descriptions. One of my favorite is he, he, he compares how the bubbles pop off the bottom of a pan to ballet jumps. He says they do it in short, short, graceful bursts into the air. And it's, it's, it's just glorious. And eventually these are used to establish these stable thermometers and we could now compare them. But I think that story for me, as well as sort of proving the conceptual difficulty of coming up with measurements, you know, the, the attention that measurement inspires is what I really, really love about the subject because measurement is a practice that sort of in, you know, it forces you to pay attention. When you're measuring something, you suddenly focus in on that object, whatever it is. And like, you know, the scientists studying the different types of boilings, it can reveal new things about the world in the process. And suddenly, you know, you find beauty where there was none. <laughs> which is a rather <laughs> a rather romanticized view of measurement but you know that's uh, that's my stance on it <laughs> james vincent thank you very much for joining me on the bunker it's been a pleasure thank you here really enjoyed it beyond measure by james vincent is out now in the uk i cannot recommend it highly enough the ending weirdly made me do a little cry which i really wasn't expecting in a book i assumed to be about rulers Thank you very much for listening to The Bunker, and if you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more, and we'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold, and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison and theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker was 27 minutes long, that's 0.45 hours, 1,620 seconds, and 1,620,000 milliseconds. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.